Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. American politicians like to say that Americans are the best, the hardest workers, the most competitive. You've heard these speeches. And politicians have been saying that for a long time. But in 1971, President Richard Nixon received a memo which argued that Americans might not be quite as competitive or as dominant as we'd thought. And the president would have to pay attention if this problem had a chance of getting solved. The memo argued that the singular dominance that America had had after World War II was ending and that lots of countries had literally picked up the pieces of their cities and become major trading competitors. And the competition was only going to get tougher. The memo was by a little-known businessman named Pete Peterson, who would go on to become a billionaire. But the memo did not change politics around trade. Not then, not in the 45 years since then. By 2016, our views about the world and trade were, let's just say, on the rocks. Here's President Trump in February. The deals we have with other countries are unbelievably bad. We don't have any good deals. In fact, I'm trying to find a country where we actually have a surplus of trade as opposed to a de- every, everything's a deficit. And here's Senator Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. I was on a picket line in the early 1990s against NAFTA because you didn't need a Ph.D. in economics to understand that American workers should not be forced to compete against people in Mexico making 25 cents an hour. Edward Alden argues that we should examine a potentially much more unpopular view, that global trade may be a good thing, though the way that we approach it has been kind of problematic. Edward Alden is a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of the book, Failure to Adjust. Edward, thanks for being here. It's great to be with you, Kara. Thank you. So let's just talk for a second about that 1971 memo that I mentioned. Um, Why did President Nixon not listen to the warning that, hey, you know, other countries are getting more competitive. We got to do something about this. Well, he he did and he didn't. I mean, that, that memo was quite astonishingly ahead of its time. There are, you know, bits of it that you'd read and you'd say that's dated, but there's a lot of it you could read today and say the United States is facing exactly the same problems in 2017 that Pete Peterson wrote about in 1971. And there were really sort of two things he argued. One, the United States had to make sure that the rules of trade and global competition were fair ones under which we could prosper. Nixon listened to that portion of it, but there was a whole other part of the Peterson memo which said we have to do things here at home in terms of education and infrastructure and support for innovation and worker retraining programs to make sure that we as a country thrive in the more competitive global economy. And those pieces really fell by the wayside, Mm. not just under Nixon, but under other presidents as well. Why do you think successive presidents after Nixon, if you think this is true, have continued to sort of um, ignore the part of the memo that was like about, you know, increasing competitiveness in terms of education and job retraining? And like, why does that can keep getting kicked down the road? Well, I think there were two reasons. I think one that you mentioned in the opening was this conviction that Americans were just 
better than anyone else at the world in mm -hmm. terms of economic competition, that our workforce was the best, that our companies were the best. And therefore, there was really no need for the government to think systematically about a set of policies that would support American economic competitiveness. And Peterson right. in the memo warned very strongly against that. He said, look, this is a dangerous complacency and we are moving into a very new world. You know, by 1971, we were already seeing uh, Japan and Germany come back as manufacturing powerhouses. He foresaw the rise of the East Asian rim as a major uh, mm. center of global manufacturing. He said, look, we've got to wake up to this reality. So I think that was one of the reasons. Right. So if we are switching, or if we have obviously switched from an era in which, you know, textile mills can go from Fall River, Massachusetts to, you know, Alabama, and then then can go from Alabama to Juarez, Mexico, does the government owe its citizens something different in a time when that company just literally crosses a border and is no longer um, in the U.S. anymore? Well, John F. Kennedy thought that the government did owe its citizens that. Um, he was the architect of something called the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, which turned out to be a disappointment. But when he created it, he was quite passionate about it. He said, look, this will be a generous program of aid to workers who lose their jobs because of import competition. In fact, assistance to the communities that get hard hit. Because, of course, when the textile mill disappears, that affects, you know, the restaurant and the bowling alley and the local drugstore right. and all of the other uh, enterprises in the town. He said, look, we, we have to help these places. And he gave several fairly passionate speeches about it, saying, look, liberal trade is a policy that is in the interests of the United States. We're going to benefit economically. It's important for our diplomacy. It's important for our security. But we can't pursue a policy that we believe is in the national interest and then let a, a smaller subset of our population pay all the price. We actually need to help them through this transition. Mm -hmm. And yet the United States never did that. So yes, I think the government did owe those communities that, and so did JFK. We are not the only country that has experienced this, of course. Um, and you've talked about other countries spending hugely um, uh, more than we do when it comes to retraining. And I don't mean education. I don't mean like eighth grade education or 10th grade. I mean like you've lost your job. It's gone somewhere else, let's say, or it's just been phased out. There is no such job anymore. Um, and retraining people. Can you talk about um, what countries and like what you see in terms of other places and, and potential models for the U.S.? Yeah, um, great question. I just uh, let, let me say that there are two differences between the United States and most of the other advanced economies. And the first one is that the speed of our entry into the global economy was pretty dramatic. I mean, over the course of my lifetime, I was born in the early 1960s, you know, we've gone uh, from sort of 10% of our economy being wrapped up in trade to more than a third of our economy being wrapped up in trade. That was a really rapid transition. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, the dislocations here in the United States were bigger than they were in Europe, where, uh, you know, you look at Britain and France and Germany, they've long been bigger trading economies mm -hmm. than the United States. So I think that's the first point, that I think the shock here was somewhat larger. But the second point is the one you make, which is that in terms of public policy, we do a lot less. I mean, you can get into the particulars of the programs, what the Germans do in terms of their apprentice programs and in terms of wage insurance that tops up worker salaries if they if they lose hours at their job. You can look at Denmark and the, and the dramatic interventions that they do uh, when people there lose work. If you just look at it in terms of spending, 
the United States spends 0.1% of its GDP on these what are called active labor market programs. The average in Europe is half a percent of GDP, five times as much. In Denmark, it's 2% of GDP, 20 times as much. There is a much larger commitment in all of the other advanced economies to trying to help the workforce make this transition. We've just never gotten into that game seriously in the United States. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Edward Alden, the author of Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. Um, when you think about what we have to do to have a workforce with sort of the right skills for the economy as you see it now, as you see it going forward, uh, what should we be doing differently? What should we be doing, period? You know, like, what do you see? I think the key challenge is to recognize that the education and skills requirements for the good jobs of the present and future are just significantly higher than they were in the past. I mean, if you think about the transition from agriculture to manufacturing, which was a big transition in the United States. You go back to right. 1900 and, right. you know, 40 plus percent of our population was in agriculture. Right. And, you know, by 1960, a, a high percentage of it had moved into manufacturing. That was in many ways, in skill terms, not that big a leap. You know, you took, you know, strong young men off the farm who knew how to tinker with machinery and you put them in factories where they needed to be strong and know how to tinker with machinery. So mm. they kind of had that set mm. of skills. As you move from a manufacturing economy to a high-tech economy, a services economy, the, the reskilling portion is much harder. And you hear a lot of conversations about the need for lifelong learning and making it possible for people throughout their careers to move to the next level of education or training that they need. And we're not really structured to do that for the most part. We sort of see education as a one and done. You go through high school or right. community college, right. university, and then you're finished and you're set for the rest of your career. With the pace of technological change today, I don't think that's realistic. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons the United States did so well economically in the 20th century is we educated more of our young people up through high school sooner than any of the other major economies. If you look now We've kind of stayed where we are in terms of education and college completion. A lot of other countries are, are leapfrogging, mm. and, and we've got to catch up again. Now, I just want to take the other side of what we've been talking about, which is that uh, we have seen a lot of foreign companies come here to the U.S. and open up uh, manufacturing plants. Um, I think about like Volvo, BMW. If we are in the beginnings of, I don't know, either a trade war or trade deals just in general sort of we're clamping down or we don't really want to be involved in them, is it possible that we're kind of clamping down just at the moment when they're about to help us? Like other companies, other countries, you know, are trying to come in and say, we, hey, we, we'd like to put a manufacturing plan in Ohio. That is that is a great question. And, you know, one of the ironies of these things, if you look if you look at the political mood on trade, it's been souring for decades and it finally falls over the cliff just when the United States has concluded the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which in a lot of ways was the best trade deal the United States had ever written. It learned a lot from some of the previous failures. And yet that was the deal that gets thrown out of the window when the public mood finally moves hard against trade. And I think the foreign investment piece is another one that we should be really worried about. You know, if you look at why 
trade relations with Japan went from very sour in the 1980s to much sweeter in the 1990s, it was because the Japanese began investing in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, Honda opened their plant in Marysville, Ohio in 1986, and Toyota and Nissan and others followed. And suddenly the Japanese were here in the United States investing, creating jobs. The Germans, as you point out, have done it with BMW and Volkswagen. The Mexicans are doing it uh, more and more in the United States. And the Chinese have figured this out, too. They're investing much more heavily in the United States. So, yes, I worry about exactly what you suggest, that we're going to shut the door exactly at a time when a lot of companies are eager to come in. If you uh, could have a big stage and talk to the American public, um, you know, individual people, What is the thing that you would tell them that maybe they don't know about trade? You know, maybe as a myth, maybe as a false idea that you'd want to say, hey, hey, I just want you to know this is actually the reality. Okay, so I'm I'm going to say two things in response to this. Sure. We heard our politicians say again and again and again over the course of decades that trade – was a great thing that would lift all boats and we would all be wealthier because of it. And I think they never took seriously what they understood, which is that there are real distributional consequences. There are going to be some real winners from trade and there are going to be some losers. And we needed to recognize that at the outset. And I think that there was an effort to paint the gains Mm. far more broadly than was actually the reality. So I think Trade was oversold, and Mm. and I would tell people you need to understand the ways in which trade was oversold. On the other side, I would say do not underestimate the ways in which trade has improved your lives. So if you look at the average family and what they spend on clothing, go back to 1970, the average household spent 7% of its family budget on clothing. A lot of stuff was made in the United States, but they paid a lot for it. Right. Today, the average family spends 3% of its budget on clothing. Mm. You go to you know any mall in the country, and clothing is very cheap. It's all made elsewhere, right. but it's good quality, and it's inexpensive. And you can go across a whole series of products. You know, The Apple iPhone would not exist without the global supply chain that made it possible. It's got components in it from 30 different countries. Wow. So, you know, if we love cheap clothing and we love our iPhones, <laughs> then we love international trade. Hmm. And so I think it's important neither to you know, overstate the benefits of trade, but equally important not to underestimate how much better a lot of our lives are because of what trade has brought us. It's interesting what you say about uh, clothing being, well, people are spending less than half of what they used to on clothing like 40, 50 years ago, which is great. and is literally great for everybody except the person who lost their job making clothing. That person, they have 0% of their income, presumably. I mean, they may have found another job. But you know what I mean? Like that person was really hurt. Everybody else gets to spend more of their income on whatever else. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at the absolute gains in terms of consumer savings, if you're going to do a pure utilitarian thing, it would be clear that the gains to the mass of Americans far outweigh the cost for Uh those selected workers. Uh But getting back to Kennedy's point, you can't allow a small subset of the population to pay the whole price for gains that everyone else is realizing. And we never took that problem seriously. We never went at, did what we needed to do to help those people make the transition. Edward Alden is author of Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. He's also a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Edward, thank you so much. This is great. Great to be with you, Kara. Thank you. 
additional interesting tidbit from my conversation with Edward Alden. Before globalization and fair trade really took hold, government regulation in an area like apparel was absolute in a way that is almost inconceivable today. You go back to the 70s and 60s, every single category down to you know men's underwear of a certain fabric was quota limited. Broken down by every single country that sold it to us, by every different kind of fabric, by different kind of specifications, there were thousands of quota categories. The entire textile and apparel industry was a managed trade sector. It was not free trade at all. We've got more about how so many Americans soured on trade and why the Trans-Pacific Partnership might be, as Alden argued, one of the best trade deals we ever signed. That's all at innovationhub.org. If you stop Americans on the street and you ask them where all the jobs that we've lost to trade went, you're going to hear a couple names rise to the top. One of them is China, which is absolutely right. Lots of things that used to be made in America are now made in China. But to lose sight of those jobs once they head to China, to assume that that's where they stay, is to miss the next part of the trade story, one Americans don't know a lot about, but one that will increasingly shape our lives, both because of economics and more immediately because of those genes that you just bought. Irene Yuan's son is an engagement manager at the consulting firm McKinsey & Company and the author of the forthcoming book, The Next Factory of the World, How Chinese Investment is Reshaping Africa. Irene, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. So um, I mentioned genes, um, but you say it's not just genes. You've got Chinese and Taiwanese companies um, making like Reeboks, making uh, Levi's, making yoga pants that are sold at Kohl's. Um, And those Chinese companies are not in China making those things. So you want to talk about like what's going on here that we're not seeing? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Actually, many of the things that Americans buy today at shopping malls are being made by Chinese companies not in China, but actually in Africa. So take the country of Lesotho, which is a tiny country that probably most Americans have never heard of. Uh, It's in southern Africa. It only has two million people. And yet it has dozens of factories that produce clothing, apparel for Levi's, for Kohl's, for Walmart, all these brand names that we've heard of. And the owners of the factories are Chinese or Taiwanese, um, but all the workers are locals, uh, Southern Africans, locals from Lesotho. Hmm. If you take a step back and you think, well, this is maybe interesting for China. This is maybe interesting for Africa because all these jobs are being created. But why does America care? Like, Do Americans really care if their yoga pants get made in China or Bangladesh or Lesotho or whatever? I would say two things about why Americans should care. So first of all, I think they should care. Um, Now, the two reasons for me would be, one, America has been heavily involved, you know, as the leader of the free world in trying to help Africa alleviate poverty and become middle income countries. And America has been engaged in that ever since independence for most African countries. So it's been more than half a century. And I think we have to be really honest with ourselves and realize that a lot of the dogma 
of how America has tried to do this has not worked. And now there's this big new opportunity that Africa can industrialize and actually change the structure of its economies by using manufacturing investment from China. And so this is a historic opportunity towards a goal that America has been putting resources and energy and people in for a long time. The second reason that I think America should care is, you know, on the global arena, China is taking on this new interesting leadership position in the world. And China has unique things to offer. And I think Americans, you know, have this way of defaulting uh, into perceiving, you know, issues with China as a zero-sum game. And I think for the benefit of the world, it's helpful to start examining these, these phenomena like this one, where China is actually playing a really unique positive role that doesn't take anything away from the U.S. It's not like there are labor-intensive factories that the U.S. could be outsourcing to Africa today, right? And for the peace and security of the world, I think it's really helpful for Americans to start recognizing these unique roles that China can play for our shared prosperity. Can you give an example of an African worker you met whose life has been changed by a Chinese company coming to uh, Africa? Like, where do they work? What do they do? Has their life been changed? Yeah. Um, One person that comes to mind is a man named Ahmed. Uh, He is a now middle-aged man uh, from northern Nigeria, which is the poorest region of Nigeria. It's close to the area where we're hearing stories about Boko Haram today. And he, like many young Nigerian people, uh, didn't receive a very high-quality public education. And when he got out of school, he basically tried to find odd jobs on the street to make ends meet. Nothing very steady. The youth unemployment rate in Nigeria is extremely high. And one day he meets a man named Mr. Wong on the street. And Mr. Wong is this guy from China that had just arrived in Nigeria and wanted to set up his own factory. But Mr. Wong doesn't really speak English very well. So the two people are like, you know, sign motioning as best they can on <laughs> they the street. They don't speak any of the same languages. Okay? Exactly. And Mr. Wong says he needs a driver. So Ahmed becomes his driver and starts doing odd jobs in addition to driving uh, as Mr. Wong's setting up his factory, which is a cardboard box factory. And one day, Mr. Wong decides he needs to buy a car. Now, the import duties in Nigeria for vehicle imports are very high. And so what lots of people do is they go to Benin, which is the country next door, um, where the import tariffs are much lower. They buy a car there and then they drive into Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is Benin is French speaking. Um, And Mr. Wong doesn't speak English all that well, much less French. And so Ahmed has to do it. But this is in the days before, you know, secure mobile money. And so Mr. Wong has to hand over the entire payment for the car in cash to Ahmed. And, you know, all his Chinese managers are standing around like, this is insane. Like, you're going to (laughs) give however many tens of thousands of dollars in cash to this man. He's just going to disappear. But Mr. Wong kind of takes a deep breath, hands over the money, and Ahmed comes back with the car. And so from that point on, Mr. Wong decides to teach everything he knows about running factories to Ahmed. And so when I went to this cardboard box factory in Nigeria a couple of years ago, Ahmed was running everything. He's the factory manager. 
And everybody reports to him. Mm. You know, there are even Chinese line managers who have to report to him. um, And some of them don't like it. But because of this job that he's worked his way into, he now has a real transferable skill set. He's highly valued. He's highly paid, um, particularly for someone of his education level. He's gotten to be able to get married, which men from his tribe need a certain amount of wealth to pay the bride price in order Mm. to get married. And he's taken on not one but two wives. You know, polygamy is accepted in his marriage. So this is a rich man now. Right, right, right. And he's also brought his younger brother to work at the factory. He's brought many people from his village. And so his village is being transformed. By this one guy. By this one guy doing well at a factory. Hmm. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. And I'm talking with Irene Yuen Sun from the consulting firm McKinsey. She's the author of the forthcoming book, The Next Factory of the World, How Chinese Investment is Reshaping Africa. It's interesting, you know, you have pointed out uh, this sort of paradigm shift that's going on about how, you know, America for a long time, and even now, I think largely, has thought of Africa as a place that receives aid, food aid and other kinds of aid, you know, a very poor place, has famines, not, which is not untrue. But instead of thinking of it as a poor place, China thinks of it as a place of like potential huge investment, like huge riches. And it's sort of a turning on its head of the way that America has thought about Africa for many decades. How did China first come to think of Africa as a place where, again, like huge riches could be made? Yeah, it's it's an interesting mindset um, difference that you point out. And one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by this phenomenon, which is that China sees in Africa what it itself was a generation ago. We have to remember, you know, I'm 31 now. When I was a kid in China, there were very few highways. Um, This was a country where meat was rationed. Uh, You got a coupon of how much meat you could buy. You know, this was a poor place. And China itself, over the last generation, has gone through the most remarkable poverty alleviation record that any country in the history of the world has. And it's done that on the back of attracting foreign investment, attracting business and getting businesses to grow. And so I think there is a core belief that the poor places in the world can do this. Mm -hmm. And it's not a theoretical belief. It's a very practical belief. I hear the refrain a lot from Chinese entrepreneurs that I meet in Africa that, oh, this, you know, Ethiopia or Nigeria or Lesotho, wherever they happen to be standing as they're talking to me, this is just like my hometown 30 years ago. Interesting. And that is a powerful, powerful belief that's good for Chinese entrepreneurship, but also good for Africa, I think. So um, we've talked a lot about the upsides for Africa, the upsides for China. Um, Talk a little bit about what are there downsides for Africa that, you know, Chinese companies move in and obviously, to some degree, for good or bad, change the economic order, maybe change the social order. Like, what are the downsides here? Yeah, there are downsides. Um, And industrialization is not an easy process. It wasn't easy when it happened in China. Um, There's major environmental degradation, for example, that China is experiencing today because of the way that industrialization Mm -hmm. was done. And if you go back to, for example, when the U.S. industrialized, there were huge corruption scandals. I mean, that era of American history is is just scandal ridden. Um, In the U.K. as well, the first country to industrialize, I mean, there's 
all these stories of London being filled with soot. And so this yeah, is mean, not... People would come, I, I, I remember stories. People would come home at the end of the day and they had to change clothes because the white clothes they had were now yes. brown from a day out, exactly. just one day. I and mean, that was just how messed up the air was. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, there are real downsides to industrialization, to the environment, and oftentimes to labor. Um, because oftentimes labor unions um, and the protections that we have for workers in a society are playing catch up with how quickly businesses are investing and in mm-hmm. new forms of aggressive new investment are coming in. And you see that in Africa today. And so, for example, I uh, traced the story of a worker named Kenneth Frederick who died on the job. He was electrocuted to death at a Chinese factory in Nigeria. And I basically went and tried to talk to everybody who knew anything about this. The short answer is no one knows what happened, truly, and whose fault it was. The company says that Kenneth had basically disregarded some of their safety regulations, and that was the primary cause of death. The Worker Rights Agency uh, organization thought that it was because the company um, didn't provide enough training and safety equipment that he died. And no one can really adjudicate what exactly happened because the systems for protecting workers and making sure that all these regulations we now have in industrialized countries, those systems aren't yet in place in Nigeria. And so these tragedies happen and those systems still need to be built. So give me a sense of um, where this goes from here. And if you, you know, if you were to check back in 20 years down the road, what do you think, like, what do you see happening if you kind of extrapolate out from the patterns that you've seen so far? Yeah. So I think in another generation, there is a version of the world where most African countries are middle income countries Mm. and they are producing goods for everywhere in the world. So they're plugged into global value chains that produce the, the products, the tangible products that we all buy. And that increasingly there are African entrepreneurs who are setting up their own factories that are world class. So the same sorts of people that we see who are Chinese today, who have built up enough capital, enough expertise to be running world-class businesses. I think those same African workers entering Chinese factories in Africa today can, with 10 or 20 years of experience, be working for themselves, being their own bosses in really world-class firms. Irene Yuensen is author of the new book, The Next Factory of the World. Irene, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. If you're wondering, by the way, what percentage of Chinese manufacturing businesses have moved to Africa, Sun estimates that it's still only around 5%. And she says that the concerns that exist here about manufacturing moving to other countries and leaving our workers behind, those concerns don't exist nearly as much in China. That's because for the past 40 years, the one-child policy has turned China into an inverted population pyramid. Lots of old people, not a lot of young people. So the goal in China is to outsource or automate as many manufacturing jobs as possible. Let's say you want to hire someone to bake cookies. 
So you get together eggs, flour, butter, sugar, baking soda, salt, chocolate chips, and you hire a nice-seeming person off the street, and you put them in a kitchen with an oven and mixers and mixing bowls and sheet pans and utensils. What are you missing? Well, you've got the ingredients to make cookies, and you've got the means and the energy to do it, but you don't have cookies, and you're not going to without a recipe. You're either going to need something written down, or the person you hire is going to have to carry around a recipe in their head. Philip Auerswald is an associate professor of public policy at George Mason University who says there's something else you could call that recipe code. There's a lot of mystery around computer code and coders, but there shouldn't be. We've all been coding in some form or fashion for most of our lives. Philip Auerswald is the author of The Code Economy, A 40,000-Year History. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So... How do you define code? Since I think so many of us think of it as like, you know, a combination of weird numbers and letters, you know, on a computer screen. And that's what code is. How do you define it? Well, I mean, what those weird letters and numbers on a screen are intended to do is to uh, execute a certain operation or set of operations towards a goal. Um, So it's going to transform raw data in one format into a weather forecast that you can look at on your phone, for example. So that's a transformation that's not unlike taking raw ingredients, as you talked about. I start with the chocolate chip cookie example. I'm delighted that you started with the chocolate chip cookie example (laughs) because code really is a recipe. The other word that I I use uh, interchangeably with code and recipe in the book is technology. Technology is a combination of two words, one of which means art, craft, or trade, and the other one means in order to count. So technology, the word technology, uh, strictly speaking, means in order to count of art, craft, or trade, which, you know, as I hear it, means recipes. So these are words that that are really interchangeable, and they're about transforming uh, one thing to another thing that's a higher-valued use. Hmm. When do you feel like code and how did code uh, start entering human life? Well, so I titled the book uh, A 40,000-Year History because I was going back to the first example that anthropologists have uh, really studied carefully and exhaustively of a multi-stage production process, something that we might think about as code or a recipe along the lines of the creation of chocolate chip cookies. That was the production of obsidian axes um, in the Neolithic. And, uh, of course, you know, we think about the Stone Age and axes and stone tools and so forth and so on. But even at that time, you know, roughly 40,000 years ago, uh, you really had complex multistage processes that graduate students uh, in anthropology today have, have difficulty uh, replicating um, uh, you know, or at least require some training to replicate. So, so that's why I refer to it as, uh, as 40,000 years for the starting point. But actually, as the book progressed, I realized it, it goes back further than that, as early as, uh, as 2 million years ago, I would say, hmm. would be the origin of what I'm calling code. Hmm. Are there points at which you feel like, I don't know, code has like turned corners where human life got a lot more complex for one reason or another and that, you know, what, what we might think of as code, although we don't usually call it that, just really started to increase in importance and complexity? 
Well, yeah. I mean, um, so when we think about um, one version of what code means for the future, um, you've got Ray Kurzweil's notion of the singularity and that we're all going to be sort of cyborgs and our capacities are going to be enhanced by machines. But that story, that transformative story of the way technology really shifts that what we are as human beings goes back to, as I was just sort of uh, alluding to a moment ago, two million years ago. And what happened two million years ago? Well, our ancestors, pre-homo sapiens, did something that turned out to be very clever. Before eating food, um, they either crushed it or they sort of cut into it with sticks or, mm. or, or stones. It was very primitive, but what it did was externalize some of the functions of our digestive systems. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like we created a machine for digestion that was external to our bodies, and it meant that since we were spending less of our energy literally in our gut digesting food, that it freed up energy to grow our brains. And that's what we did. So that was the first that was the first major disjuncture. Mm. Uh, but the invention of the alphabet and and what that meant in terms of it, of course, it's not a coincidence that that coincided with uh, or roughly coincided with the origin of cities. So the city as a platform for creating and sharing code, this another interval. But uh, human history is arguably, I mean, that's the case that I'm making in this book, overwhelmingly the story of the evolution of code. Right. It's interesting, you know, you talked about... Um that when you take a process out of your body, as our ancestors did millions of years ago, essentially, as you said, like pre-digesting things, getting calories out more effectively than having, you know, so that we didn't have to like eat all day, like many right. animals obviously spend all their time trying to get and digest food, that right. that was this sort of externalizing of technology uh, for us. And I remember years ago hearing an interview with um Phil Libin, who created Evernote, which is this app, and the idea is like it keeps track of the stuff you do. And he said, I want my app to be an externalization of our memory. You know, that it used to be that we had to think, what do I have to do next? What do I have to do? What, you know, what are the notes for this meeting? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore because this will be an externalization of that technology. And when you describe the, you know, the roasting of the animals, his analogy was exactly the same. That Don't worry, we'll just externalize a process. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, you easily could have, have said back two million years ago, um, you know, don't touch the meat that way. What are we going to do? Like, we're not going to have um, anything to uh, occupy our time mm-hmm. uh, because we won't be digesting food. Mm-hmm. Um, well, no, it turns out growing a brain is, is good and then it opens up new possibilities. And so whenever we externalize one function, now it's sort of like it takes maybe somebody, I don't know what the age barrier is, over 40 or something, to remember when you would have remembered your friend's phone numbers, you know, that that was like a thing, that there would be sort of certain people right. whose phone numbers you remembered and you memorized them because they were like your best friends. And, um, you know, we don't do that anymore. It's right. just everything. And, and so it, that's, I have a little, I have sort of nostalgia for that time period. There's certain <laughs> phone numbers that I remember Me from too. my youth. Me too. And they're special. I mean, those are very special. So it's like my kids don't get that experience. True. Okay, they get other experiences. So there's always going to be this shift uh, in, in, and it's really a shift that's pretty profound. It's a shift in our identity. You know, what's meaningful? Uh, you know, how do we how do we define a relationship with another person? Um, you know, that's mediated through things like remembering somebody's phone number and the fact that we don't need to do that anymore. That it's just a waste of time at some level. You know, then becomes you know a shift in, in really what we are and how we experience the world. And that always happens when when there's an advance in code. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Philip Auerswald, author of the book, The Code Economy, A 40,000-Year History. 
How do you think that it helps people to think about code the way you think about it, which is not just a few special people who, like, work at Microsoft, you know, that kind of thing, but really that it's something that we all engage in all the time. How does or, like, how should that change the way we think about code? Well, that's an important question for this book because it's sort of like, why write this? Uh, I mean, everything that we've talked about is fun, but then there's sort of like, I mean, at least I think it's fun. (laughs) Mm. I I hope it's fun. Otherwise, I wouldn't have spent so much time working on this. But there there is a point. And I mean, the the epigraph uh, with which I begin the book is from Julia Child. Um, And Julia Child's autobiography, or at least, uh, you know, sort of for part of her life, My Life in France, was a real inspiration for me in writing this book. And I think that we have to sort of understand the deep significance, not just validate in some sort of peripheral way, but understand and recognize the deep significance of the advance of code in all its dimension. And the advance of code in the culinary arts is a huge dimension of mm-hmm. the human experience. And and somebody like Julia Child is a great inventor and a great technologist. You know, we think about well, uh, technologist, that doesn't make any sense. But she did something that was truly remarkable, which is that she took uh, the code of another culture and translated it for our culture. But in so doing, she actually advanced the understanding of French cuisine, even in France. Mm-hmm. And it was that act of encoding a code that had been mostly tacit, mostly not understood, that was really a huge advance. So I think, first of all, it's important to understand the the, the significant, profound, uh, actually, contributions of, of those people who advance code along all dimensions. Uh, and the story of Ruth Wakefield, that you know, we began with the the inventor of the chocolate the, chip the cookie. cookie. Yeah, yeah, and, and and a great inventor, a great entrepreneur who who deserves to be elevated, uh, along with all of the other great inventors and entrepreneurs of the early twentieth century who are operating in a certain sphere of these transformations uh, of the early twentieth century. Really, you know, a remarkable time period. So that that was the first point. The second point is that. If we understand the evolution of code, the advance of code, and what it means, then it puts into context something that we talk about a lot, but I don't think we really understand, which is the job, right? So there's sort of a notion that the job is something that is a constant in human society, that that somehow we have to have jobs. When we look even just two or 300 years into the past, much less 40,000 years, we realize that the job, as it's usually discussed and understood, has only existed for, let's say, roughly 150 years. Hmm. Now, there might have been the British East India Company, and there were a few large-scale organizations, Imperial China, you know, that were, that were large-scale and hierarchical, and you could say there were jobs prior to 150 years ago. But as far as a sort of dominant way to organize society... You couldn't have jobs in the way we think about it until you had large-scale organizations that were running complex code that needed to be distributed among different teams and groups and so forth and so on, with each of them executing part of the code. So that's going away. Jobs are going away. Um, and they had a little interval. They were an interesting experience uh, for, uh, for, for humanity. But that's not the only way to organize society. We organized ourselves for millennia before we had jobs. And we're going to continue to organize ourselves after we have jobs as they're as I know that's going to sort of create some sort of, you know, it may induce some kind of like reflexive panic. But but I think we just have to understand, like, what is the actual reality we live in? So explain that more. I mean, I understand what you're saying in the sense that, like, people did not used to have jobs. They were farmers because their parents were farmers. And 
the instruction for farming, sort of the code for farming, was passed on to each successive generation. But obviously, we pass on code in, in kind of a different way now. You know, you hire someone and you say, here's how you make a jet engine. Um, but you said uh, jobs like that are going away. Explain that. Well, I mean, so so first, in order to put it into context, mm. people often talk about agriculture, but let's go back to the trades, right? I mean, for centuries, uh, people's lives were sufficiently short relative to occupations that people developed occupational names like Smith, Barber, Baker, mm-hmm. Eisenhower means iron worker. But this was an interval uh, where it would be expected that you would you would pass the same trade uh, down through through generations. Um, so that doesn't exist. We don't have Mr. Human Resources Manager. That's not your name. Uh, you have another name. And then you, you have this job that's a role that you fill, and then you may no longer have that role. You right. get a different role. Right. Now, that's going to go away because, there's, because the organizations in which these jobs um, are situated, I, I don't mean, you know, is it go away. I, I, what I mean by going away is go away as the dominant way to organize uh, society. It's not to say that we won't still have large-scale institutions, there won't still be rules in them, and they won't look a lot like jobs. But I mean, what I'm saying actually is something I think everybody listening understands that this notion of, you know, you get in a job, you work in that job, you retire, you you know, then you sort of have your retirement, that's that's what your life is, that just doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So what's going to replace it? Well, what has to replace it, in my view, inevitably will replace it, although, you know, this is really the crux of the question, is opportunities for meaningful work. That's very different than a job. And then the question is, how is that meaningful work remunerated? And that is really a, a social question. That's really a question of how we organize society so that the value that people create in the world is rewarded in such a way that they can have self-esteem and have the opportunity. So we all have the you know, opportunity to raise children, just all the basic things that we want to do, have meals together. So I think that what replaces jobs is a variety of, of opportunities for meaningful work uh, that we must and I believe will create um, as these structures that have been relatively more permanent structures that we've been calling jobs uh, begin to diminish in importance. What is your best advice for people to uh, think about that new reality? Like, should you learn how to... I mean, we've been talking this whole time about how, well, we really already know how to code because we know all sorts of codes. We know codes of laws. Like, we know ways to behave. You know, that if you don't want to get arrested, you do certain things and you don't do other things. That's a code of laws. Um, You might know how to follow recipes and that's code. But should we all be learning... like? how to code in the way that we usually think about, you know, technology and coding. Is that important to going forward? Or like, what's the best way to adjust ourselves to the way that things are about to change because of code? So the default is to think, yeah, code is becoming more powerful. We all need to code. That's the wrong answer. Um, we should all, all our children, all of us should have some greater literacy about what code, particularly digital code, is we should just understand what machine learning is. We should just try to educate ourselves just just to be educated citizens, Mm -hmm. right? But in terms of our actual work and what value we bring to the world, it will be a relatively small number of people whose jobs are to interact directly with uh, machines to generate and modify code uh, at the level of platforms that are are sort of going to be sort of organizing and governing uh, a lot of human interaction, just the same way that's relatively 
few people who run, you know, water systems and electric power systems. And, you know, we count on those. They're important. These are technically trained people. We really require their expertise so that the water is safe to drink. I mean, these are valuable people, but there's just not that many of them. So what does everybody else do? Um, I mean, this is a, you know, a thought that came to me after the book was done. But really, I would sum it up by saying eye contact can't be automated. Well, somebody might say, oh, yeah, it can't. Uh, no, it can't. It really can't. And here's the reason why. When you look somebody in the eyes, we don't know what that's about. We can't encode it. We, we, there's something about how we communicate as human beings when we are really engaged with another person uh, and looking in their eyes that is just a human experience. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is be really good at that. If you're not comfortable connecting with another person directly as a human being, understanding what the this, this sort of mystery of their consciousness and your own consciousness, I mean, if this all sounds kind of like mystical or whatever, yeah, we better get used to this <laughs> world because if we're acting like machines, guess what? That's not going to be mm-hmm. a viable way to to create value for other people. If you're just following instructions, we will have a, another approach for that, right? So I would say, um, you know, if robots are taking our jobs, uh, what's left for humans to do? What's left for humans to do is be human. Mm-hmm. We have to figure out what that's about. There's, I don't really think that there's any other answer. Phil Howerswald is an associate professor of public policy at George Mason University. He's also the chair of the National Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. And he's the author of the book, The Code Economy, A 40,000-Year History. Phil, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It was really a delight. During this conversation, we mentioned the inventor of the chocolate chip cookie, Ruth Wakefield. We recently did a segment looking at her life. It's super short. It's about three minutes long, but it tells a backstory that you probably don't know. You can find it at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Marielle Carricker and Samantha Crozier. Remember that you can always grab our podcast in iTunes and you can subscribe so you get the segments delivered to you every week. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.